Hi, good afternoon. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today in the studio, um, it's double the fun. Here, <laughs> um, <laughs> we've we've got uh, Sarah Swanyen Bynum and also Salvatore Scibona. Welcome, Sarah and Salvatore. Thanks, T. Thank you. Thanks for being here. We've got Alex Sergey Engineering. Thanks to Alex for making us sound good. And here we are at lovely WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Um, upcoming, well, coming right after us, and these two wonderful uh, writers with their their new books. Um, we've got the sports too, so uh, stay tuned to hear all the good sports stuff. Um, but without further ado, I'm, I've got both of these fine books in my hands here. Um, and Sarah and Salvatore, you're here uh, to read this evening at Shaman Drum at 7 o'clock, right? That's right. We're nodding, and we're not supposed to nod on the radio. Right? <laughs> Sooner or later, I'm going to give you a chance to say something on the mic, right? (laughs) Miming. The writers who mime, they're always the best, right? Well, Sarah's book is Ms. Hempel Chronicles, um, and that's out with Harcourt. It's just out this September, was it, Sarah? Yes, I'm nodding again. So hot (laughs) off the press, basically. And, um, And let's see. And then... And I have an uncorrected proof, so I actually haven't gotten to see see the the final thing. But um, but I'll look forward to that. And then Salvatore, um, your your book is with Gray Wolf Press, mm-hmm. um, called The End, yes. a novel. And this is your first book. It is. And, and you've just heard recently that it's a finalist for the National Book Award. Yes. Congratulations. Happy day. Yeah. <laughs> when did when did you find out? On when was uh, on Wednesday, um, although I was on orders uh, from the. National Book Foundation not to tell anybody for 24 hours except for my spouse or significant other, which was uh, acutely painful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what did you, did you just sequester yourself away? Well, I couldn't get a hold of her. She was teaching and I called and left a message and I was sure that I was making it all up. So I took a walk. And I told some pigeons on the wharf in Provincetown, and they immediately flew away. And I thought, <laughs> they're that, spreading the word. That means something, and I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what it means. Right. And this is something we were saying before we came on the air that you, 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 and Sarah have in common because your first book, Sarah, was also a National Book Award finalist. Uh, Madeline is sleeping. Right? Yeah, so I, um, when I, I got the news um, about Salvatore's, I actually got an email from the National Book Foundation um, announcing the finalists, and I just <laughs> shrieked. I was so, so excited um, and, and so, so thrilled to see this happening to a friend. Yes. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's no co- coincidence that you're both reading tonight um, on the same bill at Shaman Drum. Basically. Yes, Sarah and I go. Sarah and I go way back. How far back? Let's talk about that because that's the way. I'll read your your short bios in the book, but but why don't you? Yeah, how how far how far back is well, far? S- well, Sarah and I were both um, students at the same time um, uh, at the Iowa Writers Workshop in oh. in uh, I think. Well, I guess we must have first met in 1998. Yes, this fall is our 10th anniversary. Oh, my goodness. Oh. <laughs> That's true. And, uh, They're beaming at each other out there. <laughs> <laughs> Just for all you in radio. <laughs> We've been having such a good time in Michigan since we've been here, and we keep smiling, and it's kind of it's hurting my, my um, facial muscles. <laughs> right. It's, it's like selling Girl Scout cookies <laughs> right, for too long. Right. But then, uh, and, then, um, and then after that, we've been... Uh, 
Well, I guess we probably end up seeing each other about once a year or so by by some means or other. Well, I was so happy after Iowa, I moved back to Brooklyn. And quite soon after I moved back, um, I, I found Salvatore buying lamb chops and the local key food. <laughs> Is that what I was buying? That's true, right? Um, and so... And so First in Brooklyn, and then when Salvatore moved to Providence, I've had I've had many chances to see yeah. him there. Provincetown. Um, oh, I'm so, oh I can't believe my mother I did calls that. it Providence Town. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but you're you're on the coast at Provincetown, and you're are you right. you're running the the work center there? That's right, the Salvatore. Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown. I I administer the writing fellowship, um, where uh, uh, a lot of actually uh, quite a few. Um, Michigan alumna have been uh, have been fellows, including uh, the most recent one was Michael Hinken, who was a who teaches oh, yes, who teaches Michael. at Michigan now, and uh, he was a fellow at the Work Center two two years ago. We're all big 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 fans of of his work, so we you know we see we get a whole lot of stuff that comes to us in Massachusetts from from the Michigan uh, Writers Program. Yes, and I imagine Iowa too, where where you both. Uh, uh, Hail from, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the August Iowa, right? <laughs> Michigan's Michigan's up there trying to. Um, well, here, you know, let me. I'll read. I've been talking about doing it, but I'll I'll read your your bios here, and I'll start with. Um, we had a rock, scissors, paper beforehand. No, we didn't. But I'll start with Salvatore uh, this time, since we started with Sarah's music, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, so the novel that uh, Salvatore will read from this evening at Shaman Drum is The End. Um, Salvatore Scabona's fiction has been published in the Three Penny Review, Best New American Voices 2004, and the Pushcart Book of Short Stories, the best stories from a quarter century of the Pushcart Prize. Um, this is his first book, The End. And as I said, it's put out by Grey Wolf Press, um, a really lovely press um, yeah the, the book itself how the, it looks oh they did such a great job it's every little boy's dream a book that they, they just to make a book and to have it look better than you hoped i mean it, they just uh, this is like a bad for radio but it but, <laughs> but uh the, the image on the cover and the design of the whole thing is really um i know a lot of writers a lot of writers end up having some kind of a conflict or a fight with their publisher about things like that and uh gray wolf is just uh, absolutely inspired press, and they did a great job. Yes, aesthetically, they always they always seem to, don't they? They yeah. always pull it out, yeah. <laughs> and and there's a, and the, there's a cover um, with trains on it, so yes. that can never be a bad thing. And trains figures into it, so yes. it, you get that sense that someone read the book as yes. well, and so yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you can trust them with, with their um, design. Okay, so Sarah, and then we've got. Um, We've got Sarah Swan Yen Bynum's book, Miss Hempel Chronicles. Um, and this, this I must say, I was really, I was really, uh, uh, Megan at Shaman Drum said, you've got to read this book um, a while, like a, a month or so ago. And so she was the one that handed this to me, Sarah. Um, really, really great stories. Um, Sarah Swan Yen Bynum's first novel, Madeline is Sleeping, was a finalist for the National Book Award in 2004. Uh, she is now, uh, she now directs the MFA program at the University of California in San Diego. She lives in Los Angeles with her family. 
now I feel like we should hear if you guys have any pets or anything. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> it's kind of conversational. And <laughs> with, with doing the whole bio thing, there's always that debate about how much of um, one's personal life do you put in? Do you, right. do you mention the parent? And do you mention the husband? <laughs> you, um, but but um, I, out of sentimentality, put my family. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, we can picture you there in L.A. because otherwise L.A. can be kind of kind of a hard place to be if you're I don't know, without your parrot or your family whichever whichever works best um so so you guys met in Iowa and then you also met you you were in Brooklyn together just by chance and then Provincetown um were you were you at the fine arts work center Sarah or how how Sarah was has visited um Sarah's visited several times and she's uh uh given uh, uh she's given a reading at the fine arts work center um Kind of an epic, an epic circumstance. While well, eight, eight, eight months pregnant, she read in she read in Provincetown, um, uh, right right before an enormous blizzard that really shut the town down. And um, uh, the next day, we were really concerned that she would have to be eating, um, being <laughs> being great with child. And so, uh, a friend of mine and I took this long trip. It was it was a walk that was normally five minutes. It was about forty five minutes or an hour to get to her hotel, and then we had to spend a half an hour digging a trail through the snow to the door so that we could bring her some roast chicken. <laughs> there was no way. There was no food to be had in the town. It was everybody was eating out of their out of their refrigerator. Their supplies right. or so. Oh, it was a, an act of true friendship and gallantry. <laughs> Um, but it was what we knew the blizzard was coming, but I was so my my heart was so set on getting to come and see Salvatore and be in Provincetown that I literally drove into the storm um, <laughs> <laughs> knowing there was every chance I'd be stranded there. But I was I was I was in the very best hands. Um, yes. And the, and the roast chicken. It might have been a bit cold by the time it reached you, but it, you cold got it. Is good, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, so is there also a greater community with the group that you met in Iowa? Is it something where one of those Absolutely. years where people are still yeah. interconnected? I, I, Sarah, I don't know if you think this, but it seems like our year is especially well connected. A lot of us from, well, Sarah and I were not in exactly the same year. We were one year apart, but we um, overlapped for a year. No, I think that's a, it's a particularly close-knit um group of writers that came out of the late 90s Um, so so it's 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 wonderful to have those relationships keep developing you know does that impact your work as well is it something where they they might be the people you turn to to send or or their names are in the the acknowledgments or right and they are yeah oh no yeah yeah, these are these are my most trusted readers um likewise so that that plays a really important role. So even though we're all scattered across the country, um, there's still a sense of being in very close touch, both through work um, and and through occasional gatherings and and right. um, elaborate meals. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. we we do a special. We do. I think um, one of the special advantages. We were talking to some of the graduate students earlier um, here in at Western Michigan yesterday um, about the. Uh, the advantage of of um, having a group of peers that that you know when you're 
first starting out um, because those people are going to know your work kind of from the bottom up and as it changes they're going to be able to read what you're doing and um, and put it in some context for you and also um, you know the simple matter of exchanging favors um, we all we all have a kind of I think an unwritten rule that if somebody some you know somebody's stuck on something they can send a manuscript or part of a manuscript and we'll we'll drop what we're doing and get to it um, more, more or less right away you know um, so I'm really I'm really grateful for that it was what I mean that's did it a, help in in the end in, oh, in parts of this because this took 10 years to write yeah right? more or less or a little bit longer than 10 years okay. but about 10 but years 10 is yeah. a good number it sounds, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds epic but <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly no I got I got uh just absolutely indispensable advice and um and support from the from my fellow Hawkeyes <laughs> Sorry that I had to use that word on this radio station's air. That's right. And now I feel compelled to say go blue. So anyway. Right. And, and you're and dressed you're in beautiful blue. royal blue. It's not accidental. <laughs> <laughs> um, so and, and both of you, I noticed, have um, specific websites for the for your books. Is this something that that you created individually or do you th- how, how important is it to have a website first? Because it's not for all of your books. It's for each of, you know, because. It's, well, I think it's your just, first big yeah, book. So. I think it's not. Uh, I mean, I, frankly, I wasn't really into it. Um, but the uh, the um, advantages of well, first of all, I think there's a difference between a, a website that's. Um, I think I think both Sarah and my websites are both they're book websites and they're about the they're about the book as opposed to being um, about a person. And I think I think one of the things that I think most of us, I, I think one of the things that our, our friends uh, agree with, probably a lot of us are more the kind of writers who are wanting to put books, put the books into the world and let, and let them, let them speak for themselves as opposed to trying to making the book so that it points back to the writer. And we're, you know what I mean? Sarah, do you agree with? Or do you? Yes, and it's funny that you should bring it up because actually Salvatore was the entire inspiration behind my website because I was so impressed by his, and he actually taught me how to make my own website. Um, he w- literally walked me through step by step. Um, so I was uh, a little hesitant about doing it, and um, but but I was so excited by. Salvatore's very elegant website, um, and and so I, I very much owe my website to Salvatore. It's just I think I mean if anything else, it's just a useful repository for information, so that um, people ask you questions, they can um, you could just point them to one place, you right. know, or even your like where you're traveling around when you're, right, you're right. going to talks and different. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, it, I think it's become pretty much expected. It's, it's yeah, I think pu- most publishers for for her. I mean, if there are um, aspiring young writers out there, this, it's 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 more or less required, and it, sh- it kind of it kind of should be because this is how when well when Sarah and I when most of us probably when we first hear about a book or we're first interested in a book, we're very likely using the internet at the time that we first learn about the existence of the book. So it doesn't really make any sense to like pretend that the internet isn't there. Right, and know. it seems like another way to to have a layer of connection with your readers. Yes. Although I want to say, just for the sake of 
um, harshness. I do think that the internet is the enemy of literary reading, and I don't. I I, I and I don't. Um, <laughs> I mean, just at least in my own life, the kind of mind that I uh, that the kind of mind that the internet makes or is developing more worse how it's changing the mind's yes. pathways yes exactly yes. i mean my mind gets fractured by using the internet um i thought my thoughts do not last for longer than a couple of seconds at a time and especially for a novel um then the whole principle of the novel is the opposite of that that you have a whole lot of parts that will hold that will hold together in a meaningful way so i find uh I find that the internet is like television, only worse in that respect. So, so both of you are consorting with the the enemy. But people can go and look up your websites for these two yes. books. Um, we're going to take a short break, and okay. we'll be right back. We're going to listen to some more uh, musical picks from Sarah um, today. Sarah Sunyen Bynum with her book Miss Hempel Chronicles, and Salvatore Scabona with The End. We'll be back. Good afternoon, Ann Arbor, and those streaming from afar. <laughs> I'm T. Hetzel, and today on Living Writers, if you're just joining us, um, I've got Sarah Swenyen Bynum with her book, Ms. Hempel Chronicles, and also Salvatore Scabona um, with his novel, The End, uh, in the studio. So really uh, exciting day here. Um, at the studio. <laughs> so, Sarah, the, the music, I asked you guys w- before you came to, to if there were some particular songs that you'd like us to, to use for the breaks, the interludes. And, um, and this is what you guys came up with. The first song was yours, Sarah, and now this one, too. And I noticed on your website um, that you have Miss Hem- Hempel, um, Hempel's playlist. And, and, and that figures into the novel, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, that was actually one of the great things about being able to create a website site was that it was a chance to build a sort of musical appendix to the book um, because there's a lot of music and bands that get mentioned in the book but um, so I thought it was a lovely chance for anybody who might be curious to have a taste of what what Miss Hempel was listening to when she was a teenager. Yeah, listening to the pirate radio. Right? <laughs> yeah. The figure is really um, prominently in the 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 chapter or the or the story creep. Yeah, um, and I think I'll be reading from that story. Oh, really? Okay. T- tonight. Um, oh, tonight. Okay. okay. Um, she would have been very thrilled to be sitting here in this um, uh, radio station, <laughs> in this basement radio station. Um, so, the glamour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, 
but but for for me including music and including specific musical references especially to a sort of um particular moment in mid 80s uh post-punk uh musical history was a chance to show this other dimension of Miss Hempel, because I think, you know, when we look at our middle school teachers, it's sort of difficult to imagine them in any other capacity than standing in front of the classroom. And so, um, even if you adore them, like her students seem to. Yeah. Yeah, So I think, I think, I think for me, the music was one way of being able to reveal this other dimension to her, um, a dimension that might be unexpected. Um, that that she liked very noisy music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and it was surprising because and she also lived that in her the way she tried to dress, you know, trying to get out of the house, and then her mom would would come and get her when she thought she had just the right fishnets and red shoes. I think high heels. I don't know. I just it was really <laughs> visual. You could, it was a great section, and and also that late night, that loneliness of adolescence, or not, or adventure right when you're up listening to pirate radio and um yeah i thought all that was great in, in this but you'll be reading that tonight at shaman drum creek um is there a section that you'll what, what would what will you read for us here sarah so we can get a sense of the, the I'm gonna character be, i'm gonna be reading um a brief excerpt from the first story in the book which is called talent and it's about a talent show um and and in this passage, one of Miss Hempel's seventh graders is asking why Miss Hempel isn't performing in the talent show. Scylla Mitsui, who rubbed antibacterial gel on her hands at the beginning and end of every class, had asked that morning, why aren't you performing, Miss Hempel? Miss Hempel was copying a list of transitional adverbs onto the chalkboard. Me, she said. Oh, I couldn't, Scylla. I no longer have any talents. And it was true. This time she wasn't casting about for compliments. That is what is marvelous about school, she realized. When you are in school, your talents are without number and your promise is boundless. You ace a math test. You will one day work for NASA. The choir director asks you to sing a solo at the holiday concert. You are the next Mariah Carey. You score a goal, you win a poetry contest, you act in a play. And you are everything at once, actor, astronomer, gymnast, star. But at a certain point, you begin to feel your talents dropping away, like feathers from a molting bird. Cello lessons conflict with soccer practice. There aren't enough spots on the debating team. Calculus remains elusive. Until one day you realize that you cannot think of a single thing you are wonderful at. You have talents, Scylla Mitsui protested, and then paused. You are an affable teacher. Miss Hempel was moved, but knew that affable, although a vocabulary word, was not synonymous with good. (laughs) She was not a good teacher, yet teaching had rendered her unfit for everything else. She was not a good friend. She didn't return phone calls. Nor a good lover. A student's smiling face would suddenly materialize before her mid-coitus. Nor a good citizen. She didn't have time to read up on all the propositions before she went to vote. She had chosen teaching because it seemed to offer both tremendous opportunities for leisure and the satisfaction of doing something generous and worthwhile. Too late, she realized her mistake. 
Teaching had invaded her like a mild but inexorable infection. Her students now inhabited her dreams, her privacy, her language. She found herself speaking as they did. Anything cheap or worn or disappointing was ghetto. I'm so sick of this ghetto answering machine, she would exclaim to her empty apartment. Anything extreme was mad. The food here is mad expensive, she would say, examining a menu. No doubt, she used liberally to indicate her emphatic agreement. Her one comfort was the mutuality of the exchange, for they, without realizing it, had adopted her mannerisms as well. Once she overheard Michael Reggiani refer fondly to Julius Levy Cohen as irredeemable. Or when Kia Brown was sent back to the end of the lunch line, she said, I'm so cross. But really, victory was theirs. They had taken the castle and hung their flag from the turret. They had corrupted even her impeccable spelling. Miss Hempel, crowned grammar queen of her junior high, now found herself confusing their T-H-E-R-E and their T-H-E-I-R and inserting apostrophes where they didn't belong. It was a war of attrition. Even the most egregious mistakes seen over and over again can begin to assume the appearance of correctness. She put E before I. She bought blue nail polish. She felt tenderly toward the same boys whom her girls had singled out as crushworthy. <laughs> Earlier that day, during after-school detention, Jonathan Hamish had reached out and grabbed her hand. She was teasing him. He wanted to make her stop. Briefly, stickily, his fingers closed over hers, and her heart jumped. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Wow. Um, that voice is so frank and so humane at the same time and in the same proportion. That's what I really love about it so much, that the, the character Ms. is... Ms. Hempel's Ms. Hempel, voice. The, well, yeah. or, or I guess the voice, the voice of the... The voice, of the, the, the voice with which the narrator treats the character, mm -hmm. that she, she doesn't... Um, she exposes her faults without exposing her to the narrator's judgment of the faults um, I just think that's almost impossible to do I mean it's very very difficult um, I love it thank you Salvatore <laughs> I'm biased but still <laughs> but still very insightful <laughs> it seems characters are, are what drive both of you is that fair to say yeah, in sure. your work I think characters and language. Mm -hmm. Beautiful language, I think. The attention to the close the close attention to to language, making it beautiful and making the insights come seem to come seamlessly from it. With both of you, I noticed in the um, there's not, I mean, one of the things that's so striking about Salvatore's book is the energy of the language in every sentence. Um, there isn't a uh, slack word in this 300-page book. Um, and, and I think that um, th the energy of the language, as well as sort of an, a deep interest in character, is probably what moves these books forward as opposed to plot, perhaps. Um, I think that's true. Yes, definitely. Um, and moving it forward and, um, oh, there was something that when you were speaking, Sarah, that occurred to me and now it's flown out of my head, unfortunately. But, um, 
Well, well, let's talk a little bit more about character then, can we? Because if that's what's driving the stories rather than than plot, mm-hmm. um, how how do you be, how do you begin? Is that what you start? both of these books with? Did you start with Miss? Go Let's ahead. go to you, Sarah, since yeah. you just read for us. Kind yeah. of, we'll, we'll ground everyone in the, Ms. the lovely Miss Hempel. Well, I, it did very much start uh, with this character. and But one of the things that I think feels a little scary sometimes about having a book that is um, so fueled by a single character. In the case of Salvatore's book, he has this incredibly rich cast of characters um, but in this book it varies very much about this single character um, and there's the fear that oh perhaps no one else will find her as interesting as I do um, so so that was that was a sort of an anxiety that accompanied the the writing of this book um, how long how long was this in the making Sarah for your process um is another 10-year book. Yes. <laughs> um, a much more, it's, it's a much more slender uh, product um, than Salvatore's. I have less to show at the end of 10 years. Um, she but did, but she also... did manage another novel, a, a novel in between, however. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah. It was that novel was, was slim as well. <laughs> um, but but these, were, these were stories that I was writing, not thinking they were going to become a book. Um, and they were published um, separately in, in the Georgia Review, right, in different places. Right as as um, discrete stories. E- e- yes, and and so I th- and I think again this was sort of a case of uh, the force of a particular character. I sort of kept on thinking, oh, right. I'm done with this. Right. Um, and then a couple years later, Miss um, Hempel would sort of rear back up again in my imagination. Um, and and also the other thing that was. Um, fun about writing this was that I, I I originally sort of only saw her in the context of the classroom and the context of the school, but as more time passed, um, I began to see her in these other situations, see her as a seventh grader herself, see her with her family, see her... And her fa- the loss of her father. Loss of her father, and, yeah. see her with other teachers when there aren't students around. Um, so, so I think by um, allowing ten years to elapse, it was it was also it was it it, it also allowed Miss Hempel to appear in these other contexts that I might not have considered when I first when I first started writing about her in the classroom. That makes complete mm-hmm. sense. It really does, and it and it makes. And is it okay to say that both of these books are they're they're, they're literary novels? Like they're it's because of the attention to language, the and maybe the time it took. That maybe that's a maybe that's a, a what factor. A, that's an interesting definition of uh, of what literary means. I know so. Joyce Carol Oates wouldn't be happy with me. She'd be like, "That can be done faster, <laughs> <laughs> right?" I don't know. Wait, you know what? We should take a short break and then we'll come back. Okay, Great. you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T Hetzel, and today we have Sarah Swunyan. Bynum and Salvatore Scabona. Uh, we'll be right back. Down south to the land of the pines 
it down the coast in 17 hours Picking me a bouquet dogwood flowers And I'm hoping for Riley I could see my baby tonight So rock me mama like a wagon wheel Rock me mama any way you feel Hey God, I love that song. Welcome back. <laughs> Everyone's enjoying the song here. Hope I hope everyone listening um, did too. Um, you're listening to Living Writers, uh, and today Salvatore Scibona and Sarah Swinyen Bynum. So tell us about that song you love. Well, that, the song has uh, does this does not really pertain to the book in a meaningful way. Um, but one of the fellows at the work center at the Fine Arts Work Center uh, where I live, her husband is in um, Old Crow Medicine Show. This old time, old time uh, kind of. Uh, uh, old-time string band, banjos and fiddles and so on. And sometimes a saw? And sometimes, well, I, no, I don't know. I don't oh, actually okay. know that. Um, but uh, anyway, I really just love that. I love that uh, I love that track, and it reminded me, when you were asking for uh, music, I, 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 I realized that uh, there isn't a lot of music in the, in, in the book, but there is a crucial moment near the end um, that involves a, a kind of a band that just sounds exactly like, in my mind, sounds exactly like the way Old Crow Medicine Show sounds. Isn't that funny how that happens yeah. then? And then they get, and, and, and then they they just appear on the scene. That um, that old we've got a little extra music in the background <laughs> here. Sorry, that <laughs> another another musical interlude. <laughs> um, and the very last sentence of Salvatore's book. Um, oh my God! I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, is is about the band. Yeah. Um, that oh my last God. scene, which is totally would like give anything such, away such if a, we read such could, a point. I've never scene. read the ending of it. I could read the ending of it instead of something else. That would be so fitting since it's called the end. Sarah's <laughs> encouraging me. I just I love I love Ooh. this ending. Um, I would, could. Would you want to read like sure. a couple minutes with? Um, I could get. I could probably get it under about two and a half, three minutes or so. Is that good? Well, I could, okay. So just to say, um, or maybe I could say a little bit of what the book is about. The it takes place in Ohio in 1953, mostly, and then also in the 40 years that lead up to 1953, in a thousand different changes of um, uh, perspective. Not actually, that's not true. About six or seven perspectives uh, are interwoven in the book, um, and certain things have the significance have a certain significance the first time you see them and then uh and then you see them again from another perspective but now it's informed by the other another what another person knows and so as the book accumulates points of view it also you also as a reader hopefully accumulate um uh, a version of the events of the book that's more uh that's more and more complex from more and more people's point of view um in an earlier section i guess i've never this is rash um I've never read the ending of the book out loud anywhere, but um, well, this is the time. Yeah, I suppose uh, the uh, in a pre- previous chapter, the, the criminal in the book, the jeweler, um, you de- you determine that you you discover that his um, that he has had this searing moment as a child when he when he um, learned to play. Uh, he taught himself to play the musical saw, and. Um, was convinced by some of his uncles to play in this bluegrass band, um, and he hears, uh, and in the middle of his performance, he hears a woman laughing at him, and he goes home wondering, well, why was I not, why was I not ashamed of myself to hear that woman laughing? And he thinks, because the fact that she was laughing at me at least means that she, somehow, that she understood how 
naked I was was I was playing this music so in the at the end of the book you have you're in the point of view of the woman who it turns out is uh as a much 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 older woman about 50 or 60 years later is talking to her husband as her husband is dying yes. um and she describes um this this really kind of calamitous evening in 19 uh around i suppose it's about 1950 well 1915 but the event is taking place in the late 1890s like she's describing in this scene um and he um it's a lot to manage, isn't it? Like oh, this chronology of the, because it's interesting how, well, we'll talk about, let's yeah. hear, let's yeah. hear some of the, so, the voices. Yeah, so, um, um, Mrs. Marini? Yeah, this is Mrs. Marini, and, and um, when she, I guess the main thing that you need to know is that her her, her only son has died in, as an infant, and she's just kind of acknowledged, when the scene that she's describing, she's just acknowledged that, uh, She's never going to have any children, um, but she's describing all of this in the first person to her husband as her husband is dying 40 years after the fact. Um, but you would not refuse me. You took my arm firmly in your brown hand. I was so skinny then in your hand so big that you could wrap your hand all the way around the thickest part of my arm and touch your thumb to your finger. And I said to myself, there is no hope. And I succumbed, was dragged by you into the club, and was, I should say she's an immigrant, uh, so is all of the other, all the, all the other characters are immigrants from Italy. And I succumbed, was dragged by you into the club, and was sat down by you, was thrown into a chair behind a low table with no cloth on it that was strewn with peanut shells and loose threads of tobacco. There were a dozen young men behind the lights of the, on the stage playing violins and banjos. One had a mouth organ, another, a boy seated, had a saw, a saw that he was bending into the shape of an S and bending further and unbending and striking with a hammer and making it make this human noise plaintive while an old man older than you are now with a white patchy beard sang and i did not know the words he was saying singing it was english only it wasn't english at all and all of them were standing but the boy while the man sang and beat out the time by stomping his boot resoundingly on the floor and a negro asked you what we would drink and you told him to bring us two bottles of beer if he pleased i asked myself where was i i was 31 we had been married 10 years Alessio was dead. I asked myself, where was I? The boy was smashing and smashing at the saw, making it cry out under the violins, and there were the banjos and the mouth organ and the old man's yawning foreign voice and his stomping and the stout clapping of his hands. You would not let go my arm. My family were dead. I had killed them. The Negro came with the beers and poured them into glasses. I had no hope of any hope at all. The footlights threw the long shadows of the men up on the green wall behind them i had no past or home country to return to and no hope only this man gripping my arm so tightly my own hand had gone numb the men on the stage were leaping and the old man gave a whoop and leapt bringing his boots down solidly on the stage and the others stopped playing. I saw the boy with the saw slip the hammer beneath his chair as one of the violinists passed him a bow. Then the boy bent the saw deep against the toe of his shoe and drew the bow along the blunt edge of the saw. Everything was quiet but for this. Nobody moved but this boy with his bow and the saw and the negro carrying a bottle to a table in front of the club. And the sound broke in my mind. You remember the sound, a sound of exquisite suffering with something else in it, something I could not refuse, a sound of what suffering is on its backside. It was the hopeless sound of a child's laughter. 
A minute later, the old man gave a terrific stomp, and they all started in again with the banjos and the singing. I could not catch my breath, and you let go my arm and touched your lips to my ear and said, Stop this crying. But I did not know I was crying until you told me. I thought I was laughing. I believed I was laughing, like the boys saw, like a child's laughing. I believed I had no hope at all. I had no hope at all. I could not stop myself from laughing. The clock over the stage read 7.30. There was the smell of tobacco spit and popcorn. And if ever, should you ever, so you must open your mouth and drink something warm. If you were to, then you know this, so you must help me. You must open your mouth and drink. Then you would plunge me irretrievably to the bottom of the dead and irretrievable past. You remember, don't you? How there was a boy with fierce eyes and wispy yellow hair in his cheeks, and how you put your mouth on my ear as though we were alone, and how the old man whooped. We drank our supper. The old man at length climbed down from the stage, took a seat by the stove in the middle of the room, and fell asleep. And we stayed till eleven and listened to the lads play. Thank you, Salvatore. Thank you for reading the the end of the. <laughs> sure. <laughs> That's always. Um, There's a little bit of a saw coming up in the next break. You can hear what they sound like. I guess I had an the, ocean. In the my backside head. of sorrow or a child. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. I think the ultimate point is that the. Um, that there's something that laughter. Uh, one of the themes of the book is that laughter and suffering are the same thing. Um, in a way, they both. Um, they're both a culmination of a kind of uh, spiritual potential, um, and whether you're laughing or or crying over the thing, in some way, it's it's interchangeable. Um, yeah, that was one of that's the part of the spirit that was was driving the book. It also um, hearing hearing that um, the end passage aloud also reminded me. Um, for some reason, of Rocco and his experience at Niagara Falls. Yeah, true. As well, um, that Rocco moment is of epiphany is, or, or or blending in with. I don't. I don't yeah, I haven't thought it through fully. To well, yeah, no, I think that's. I think that's true. I think a lot of the characters. Um, I think a lot of the characters. I think another th- another theme of the book is that um, the experience of. The experience of disappointment, which we spend so much time dreading, um, once it actually comes, if it comes all the way, is um, is uh, a really kind of profound alleviation to a whole lot of suffering. To 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 be disappointed, um, as Mrs. Marini says in an earlier part of that last chapter, um, to be disappointed is to have no hope. That's why she keeps repeating having no hope. But that. That also means that you are in the present moment. That means you're awake right now. And um, she says, I have no past or home country to return to. To be disappointed, to give up on all the things you've hoped for before, and to know that your hopes, in her case for a child, are not going to be realized. That means all all you have is what you is where you are right now, which is what most of us spend so much of our time and energy trying to accomplish by other means. Right, right. That, that's why she she is such an interesting character and that we see her in such different um, trajectories in the in the novel. It's not right. like a chronology for Mrs. Marini. She she's the the one person who we see at the most stages of different stages that's of her true, life. That's true. Yeah, right? yeah. You see her okay. from the age of 
Really, from she's... the age of six to the age of 93, I guess. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking of her at the foot race, but yeah. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> it was a little later, yes. though. <laughs> um, yes. Well, and, and so, Sarah, when you're, you've... You've you've seen this. Have you seen the the manuscript in different incarnations? When when you hear Salvatore talk about this is another theme that that runs through the the book. Like is is that is that something that you that you're because you know his work as well or his his way of working? Is that something you're conscious of when you are reading the stories, or do you do you enter into the world and how is it for you knowing knowing him closely? I forgot about Salvatore completely when I read this book. Well, then um, it's a success. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and that was one of the things that was so astonishing because Salvatore um, was in many ways quite private about this manuscript um, until it was completed. And so I had been waiting for it with such anticipation and, and was very lucky to get to, to read it in manuscript form before, before the book was published. And it, I, I, I would sort of put it down for a moment and then and have to remind myself of, oh, my friend wrote this. <laughs> oh, because I was so, um, I was so moved and and I couldn't believe that someone I knew had created this. Um, so I really did completely... Uh, Salvatore left the room um, while I was reading this book. Um, and, and then when I put it down, I, I, I had to sort of have this moment of reckoning, but trying to reconcile the person I've known for 10 years with this unbelievable book. So it was a strange experience, actually. I always thought it would be a great, like a great ambition for a writer to aspire to be disappointing in person. <laughs> you know? Well, also it was so interesting because Salvatore has, has, and I'm sure, I hope this is coming across on the air, Salvatore um, has such a wonderful, distinctive personality. Um, but it was so interesting because none of his persona comes through in the book. It's, I mean, he really did erase himself um, in deference to these characters. Um, I remember... That was, in, that was a conscious... Yeah, I remember when, when, we were, when we were in graduate school, um, Frank Conroy, who was, who was the director of the workshop then, I remember one of the things... Um, I, I remember him telling me, "Oh, there's too much persona in this. Too much persona." And I and I and I struggled to understand what he meant by that. And in a sense, reading this book, it finally became clear to me what he meant by saying, uh, "Get rid of the persona," because it was so it was it was so interesting to to love Salvatore's persona and yet to s not find it at all in this book um it is the character's book yeah it's truly it's, the character's book let's let's take a short break and we'll be back and and we can come we can keep talking about now we'll this. hear some saw <laughs> we'll hear some saw now you're listening Listen to, to that. living it's a human writers voice. Listen to it. <laughs> it's plaintive um wcbn fm ann arbor living writers and we'll be right back god bless the saw <laughs>
Welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. And today on the program, Sarah Swinyen Bynum and Salvatore Scibona. Um, their books, respectively, Miss Hempel Chronicles and The End. I guess I should say Ms. I need to be a little heavier on the Ms. Hempel Chronicles, right? I went I back and forth about that because, of course, I love... Um, the prime of Miss Jean Brody, the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, and I sort of wanted Miss Hempel to be in their company, but it would have been inaccurate because in this day and age, you know, students are so um, used to using Ms. as as the appropriate term as opposed mm-hmm. to the more um, charming and antiquated Miss. <laughs> um, <laughs> Plus, it seems like Ms. Hempel would want it that way in some way. Don't you? I don't know. See, look, I'm already doing you guys have got me well inculcated into this, (laughs) this, this character cult. (laughs) Because I'm like, we got to go with what they want. It's not about us. It's not about the writer's (laughs) intentions. But um, so, Salvatore, you wanted to actually respond a little bit. Well, I wanted to ask Sarah, we were talking about about this. The thing about persona is very interesting because it reminds me of something that um, I think the first time Sarah and I spoke, we were talking about both of our, one of our favorite books is The Waves by Virginia Woolf. And um, Wolf says in her diaries at one point that she despises the personal in writing. And I thought that was so, I, that made so much sense to me. And yet um, I couldn't exactly say what I meant, what she meant by personal. And it, it seems like a persona is buried in there, right? Like, what do you, did you, can you come up with a definition of persona? I, well, it's so interesting that you say that because when Frank Conroy was sort of chastising me about this question of persona he actually used virginia wolf as oh my gosh he did and 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 the scene that he referenced was the scene in orlando when they're all skating out on the frozen river and he somehow Mm. used this as an example of a scene that had that that was truly lacking in persona. Um, yes. And, and so, so I, I, I wish I could give a definition. I mean, this is truly something that... Maybe, that it's like, maybe it's like, maybe it's the anxiety to seem um, like a persona is a demonstration of self. That's not the same thing as self. And, and, and that would work for a character as well, the demonstration well, yeah, of the, the, what you're trying to, in the character. Yeah, what you're trying to get beyond is... Not just you're trying to get beyond not just your own depiction of a of a human being as a as a mere depiction, but also in some sense beyond the character's own the uh, the character's own uh, uh, performance consciousness of, of performance them. of themselves, and really to get at the part of their mind that they're not necessarily aware of at all times. I mean, like writers, one of the the things that make up makes a a character seem real is when the character does something that seems unaccountable to him or her, and even to the people in the book, but has absolute rightness in the eye of the reader. And I think that that the reader understands the rightness of a of a piece of otherwise unaccountable behavior because the because the the writer has uh exposed something about the person's soul that um they're really they're they're kind of inchoate uh motivations so that um in other words so that the unconscious of the character is available to the reader and if you were writing about persona or f- certainly from persona, um, 
we all have our company manners on all the time, you know, and what you really want to be able to do is portray someone both with their company manners and, in the, you know, and in their, in the darkness of their hearts. <laughs> that actually does make, that does make sense. Yeah. So not just the scaffolding of personality. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's the, so it's so interesting to be conscious of writing that way, but not overly conscious because then that seems like it would be pushing it too much, but to know that, to have some true trust in your sense of the characters that it can, can you think of moments in your, your, your stories or each other's that you would say that's how it's working oh. or is it easy? It's easier to talk oh, about well, like Virginia well, Wolf probably, yeah. you know, we can say yes, Wolf did it. Well, there. this is, this, this is great moment when, um, in Sarah's book, when, um, uh, a teacher is watching these boys at a beach, bury one of their, uh, bury one of their, their colleagues in the sand. And, um, and she's, she's, she slowly becomes alarmed that the boy is not able to, um, uh, the the boy's playing along and he's he's wanting to pile more sand on him, and but he's turning purple. Uh, but he's starting to turn purple, and she starts she clearly starts to suspect that he might be in danger, but he won't say so. And she keeps saying, "Are you are you okay? You can get up now if you want." And and you can see that she feels this is not explicated; it's demonstrated in the most brilliant way that she feels that she's supposed to intercede, um, but the fact that she doesn't and that she waits for him to get up until the appropriate time um, is otherwise unaccountable. Mm. You know, it's not, it was not, it's not an ethical decision. Her resistance is not, is not ethical. It is something to do with her, her sense of, uh, like honor and reserve and being on their side somehow. Yes. And the sides of all of the kids. She didn't want to expose any of them. And, um, that only makes sense in the context of a, uh, in the context of a person with an unconscious, mm-hmm. like we all have, a, a character who's made only of a conscious mind and only of accountable acts would, would, would like she saw would be like, she saw that the child was in danger. She demanded that he got it, get up. <laughs> you know, that, I mean, that's like that would be that's plausible, but yeah. it's merely plausible. I, I think that yeah, that is interesting. It's it's I think the closest maybe she comes to it is saying that if another teacher who comes towards the periphery of what's happening, they would change it, I think. But we're talking, Sarah, what do you think about this? Because this was your, were you, were you aware of that in the writing of it? Or is it just something that when you're that deeply involved with a character, that's when, that's actually some of the the magic, if there's magic that's happening in the language, it's almost beyond us as writers. That might, I don't know. I think it's, Allowing our characters to surprise us sometimes, um, you know, to do things that not only sort of surprise and horrify themselves. I mean, I think Miss Hempel is quite, I mean, I think there's a sense of horror in that scene. Right. Um, because, as you were saying, she wants that, that her allegiance to the kids ultimately overrides her responsibility to them um, and that her need to be wow. liked right. to be liked by them um, and and her need to uh, be an ally to them um, is is actually the most dangerous kind of affection she can give them um, and I think that was something she didn't know about herself until she um, 
found herself out there on that cold beach with the boy turning bluer and bluer. <laughs> we should explain this because his mouth is getting bluer because in his eyes, the tiny little patch of his face because the rest of him is under the sand. Yes. Oh, well, it's, I know. I know you. It, wasn't, it wasn't a Michigan blue, was it? <laughs> you know, oh, he did nice. not turn scarlet or gray. Right. <laughs> oh, well, thank you both so much for coming. We're, we're reaching the end moments here. Um, yeah, I, I, I wanted to say that I, I, I wanted to hear more about like your pro. There's so many more things we could talk about, of course. Um, but one thing, Salvatore, that I thought was interesting on your website, since we've also talked about your website, Sarah, with the music, um, was that you, you have this this great long sort of talking with Salvatore part. And there's a moment um, where you you say one of your, the first books you start. You've always been writing novels ever since you were a kid, and the first one was a ripoff on The Dark Is Rising by Susan Cooper. Oh yeah, do you know? <laughs> Books? Yeah, oh, I, love I loved that. Did you love that oh, too? Absolutely. No, th- those are amazing. Like the so proce- way preceding, you yes. know, the Harry Potter and my the- girlfriend says that uh, said once that, and I think I agree with her about this that uh, that uh, the the, um, the one one in in, in non negotiable part of a novel is um, the sense of a world. Yes, you know, and um, the whole principle of the the whole principle of the Darkest Rising books is that there is another world, and it's inside this one. Yes, and we're living in it all the time without our consciousness of it. It's, oh my uh, god, <laughs> blew now, my mind. The- <laughs> Yeah. And continues to do so, yeah. <laughs> at least. Yeah. yeah. Well, we won't go out on the the chant when the dark comes rising, because <laughs> 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 that only shows how truly geeky I am. But thank you so much uh, thank again. You too. <laughs> go. Gee, this was so, so much, much fun. fun. Thank oh, you. Oh, well, thanks for coming. I love talking with you. And and tonight, if you're listening in Ann Arbor, you can you have time to head over to Shaman Drum, 7 p.m. Uh, to hear Sarah Swinyan Bynum. Ms. Hempel Chronicles and Salvatore Scabona, The End. Um, you've been listening to Living Writers. Thanks again to Alex Sergey. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. from back sunny seven you are listening to wcb and fm and arbor yeah good job everybody we got it all right all right so you guys i know that we got it Girls lined up in front of Brown. They're going to give it to him on that left side once again to the 15. Big hole of the 20. 25 30. 35 40. Look out. 45 50. It's a foot race. Down the sideline to the 30. To the 20. Nobody's going to catch him. 10 5. Touchdown, Michigan. What a run by Carlos Brown. You're listening to the Daily Sports Report on WCBM 88.3 FM and R.
Hello, everybody, and wow, I'm really loud. Welcome to the Daily Sports Report on WCBN 88.3 FM Ann Arbor. We are just about to get ready. It's a Wednesday, middle of October. First day back in school for us as we just returned from fall break. So it's a pretty slow day for us, as I know for me at least, trying to get back into the flow of things. And thanks to that, we also have a slow weekend for Michigan sports coming off of. We're about to get into a big one. So uh, let's start with Michigan sports with uh, John Zaccardelli. Getting into the swing of things, uh, let's just start off with uh, Michigan hockey uh, playing on Niagara tomorrow night at 7.30. The number five Michigan, they're 3-1. and one. The, They're taking Niagara, which is 1-2-1. and one. Uh, If you remember last year, we uh, Michigan played Niagara. Um, 